Are you ready, Sean? I'm ready, Brendan. Let's do this. Welcome to There and Back Again. And again. I'm Sean. I'm Brendan. And today we are diving into The Return of the King, the first part of our discussion, going from the very beginning of the film all the way up until partway through the Siege of Gondor, where we will be, yeah, just highlighting a lot of different things that that sparked out to us or really just made an impression on us through this, so... Obviously, the very first thing we're going to be starting with here is the the intro in this film, which is the finding of the ring where we get a vision of who Gollum was before when he was Smeagol as a hobbit. I know you could probably, Bernie, you could probably give a little bit more of an insight into the area that he lived in or the time in which we are seeing at the beginning of this film, but it's way before, obviously, what we see in the Shire and the Hobbiton that were first introduced to in the Fellowship of the Ring hundreds of years before, I'm guessing based on what the intro also says about who he was before and how many years he was in that cave by himself afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe they said it was for 500 years it poisoned his mind while he was right. in possession of the ring under the Misty Mountains after after he, you know, didn't he didn't find it after he stole it, obviously, from Deagle and killed him. So yeah, this is much centuries earlier in the, the Third Age, and I believe the area where they are is Gladden Fields, which is like east of the Misty Mountains. I know that's where Isildur lost the ring into the river. So I think the idea is that it didn't actually travel very far when, before it was found by Gollum, which would have also been centuries, if not thousands of years later after it was lost by Isildur. So... Because did he lose it in the second age? He lost it in the very beginning of the of the third age. So okay. The, the the last alliance of elves and men that war on Sauron, where they where they destroyed well, didn't destroy, but where they defeated Sauron and got the ring. That was the end of the second age. So then I think it was just you know right at the beginning of the third age is when Isildur lost the ring and was killed. And yeah, got it, got it. So it probably stayed in that point in in the river, I'm guessing, is where Smeagol found it when he was with his cousin, I'm trying to recall, his cousin Deagle. So yeah, so so the so the ring I'm guessing is probably, like you said, in a similar place to where it was lost when Isildur was killed, falling into the river, and then Deagle just happens to find it after he falls out of the boat while they're fishing. Yes. So so this is not in, I guess, proximity-wise, not very close to the Shire, Hobbiton, what what have you? No, yeah, it's, it's pretty far away from there. You know, the Hob- or the Shire is pretty far west in, like, that northwest area of Middle-earth. And so if, if what I'm thinking is correct and the location of the ring was east of the Misty Mountains in the River Anduin, which is the same river that they... They're rowing in like in the first in the fellowship where they see the Argonoth and all that. Um, okay. Just a different part of it. It's much further north. That's east of the Misty Mountains. So yeah, it, it would be quite a quite a long distance from there to where the Shire is. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so from there, that would make sense, I guess, when Smeagol gets the ring finally after killing his cousin, which obviously is the beginning of his villainy, which as far as we know, kills his cousin and he knows that he's close to the Misty Mountains. So it's quite natural for him to know the location of that and not just go wandering, but he's aiming for those caves to be alone with the precious, obviously. Mm, yeah. It's it, my, the one observation or the one question I had about this scene is I wonder if it's like, was this like the first Hobbit murder, you know, cause the Hobbit Hobbits. Like a Cain and Abel type of thing. Yeah. Like, you know, Hobbits are generally, you know, peaceful people. And that's, as far as we know, their yeah. own business and don't get involved in a lot of the bigger goings on of the world. That is, you know, up until Bilbo and Frodo and Sam, Mary and Pippin get involved into the, the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings stories, but so yeah, I just wonder if this is like, is this is this like a new thing that where you know one Hobbit kills another? I right. Know, there's probably not any way of knowing that for sure, but that was just the thought that occurred to me. Yeah, and the Cain and Abel is definitely part of what I thought. Not that he's trying to parallel that, but there's kind no, of similar, no similar vibe. If if that's the case, but it would make sense that it would be the ring that would corrupt a Hobbit enough to be able to do something like this. You know, yeah, yeah. If there was anything that was going to do it, it would be it would be the ring. So then, yeah. So we have this this murder that takes place over the ring, very very brutal on Smeagol's part to kill someone he's so close to, and then he goes into the caves, and we see this old transformation from Smeagol to Gollum physically. You know, a slow transformation. We see him. I we might have seen this in the first one. We see him eating the fish raw. We see the physical changes to his eyes and his, you know, his face and his becoming more gaunt in his look and very obviously similar to everything that's done throughout the films, but the makeup department really knocked it out of the park with that. Yeah. Not just making it a quick, you know, he was, he was a hobbit and all of a sudden he's gone, but showing you the transformation and stages I thought was yeah. really cool. One of the things that brought up for me, at least as a question was more of not like story wise, but behind the scenes wise, I knew that Peter Jackson had cast Andy Serkis for his, for his vocal representation of Gollum, as well as, you know, the, the motion capture parts of it. But I wondered as I was watching it this time around, I wonder if he knew that he would also have him playing Smeagol in this intro part in this finding of the ring chapter. Mm. If he had had him cast as the actor all along and just figured it would make sense for him to do motion capture for him too, or if this was more of an afterthought. Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, you'd think that they had most of those scenes planned because they shot all the movies all together. So yeah, I, I would, I would tend to think that yes, they probably, because he's still, you know, he, even when he's Smeagol, like while they're fishing, he still speaks in that really high, high pitched kind of froggy voice. Uh, right. And which, you know, anyone that's ever heard Andy Serkis talk knows that that's like the exact opposite of his actual voice. But yeah, I, I, that's an interesting question. I wonder, I wonder if they, if they had all that planned beforehand. Right. I mean, because, because of the way that Peter Jackson does things, especially with this whole production, it was all planned out so that he knew he was going to be filming this scene. So the scene itself was obviously not an afterthought yeah. to have that be the, the intro to Return of the King. I just I was just looking through, prior to this, Andy Serkis's filmography before Lord of the Rings, 
and any of the stuff that he's been in prior to, like I hadn't seen. Mm-hmm. I wasn't familiar with his work. Maybe Peter Jackson was. Maybe it was something, you know, stuff they'd worked on together. But it seems like it was kind of a breakout thing for him for Lord of the Rings to be done. So I just didn't know if he was cast as an actor or as just the voice as he'd been heard to do voiceover work before or something. But yeah. it's just so funny how after Lord of the Rings was done, all of a sudden you just start seeing Andy Serkis everywhere. Right. Yeah, he's had a very successful career post yeah. Lord of the Rings. And of course, then he got know, to come back and do The Hobbit, too. Right, yep. And then did that amazing film afterwards, The Prestige, which we'll talk about at some oh, point. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, so this this opening scene of this film hit me, you know, when I saw it for the first time in theaters. And then every time, I always, I always tend to like forget that it's the first scene of Return of the King. Mm-hmm. I expect something, you know, as an immediate follow-up to Helm's Deep or something, but then it is it is quite the intro to the final film. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's it's necessary to have that backstory other than just that Bilbo got the ring from him, really knowing the motivation and kind of what put him into that that place that he's in. Cuz you know, I don't know if if he would have gotten the ring and I don't know, would have covered up what happened to Deagle or something. But, it, you know, they do specifically say in the intro that he was banished. Right. So he could have gone on living in the land that he was in with the other hobbits if he would have hidden it or covered it up somehow and lived peacefully, maybe hiding it like Bilbo did. But instead, he's banished and has to go into the caves. And that temptation of just keeping the precious to himself obviously drives him into that insanity and to that that gaunt again that gaunt look he does yeah and i wonder you know it could be that he did try to cover it up and then he would maybe was just found out you know true and you know because he does he he goes back obviously like you said you know he was cast out and called a murderer so i would i would kind of doubt that he would have just gone back and confessed to like oh i just killed deagle to get this awesome ring you know so i wonder how long it took you know for that to happen or maybe he just couldn't resist you know using the ring you know obviously if he puts it on and he he goes invisible nobody could see him but i wonder maybe right. he was using the ring for to get into mischief or something when he was back in their community and i don't know and maybe maybe the smeagol side of him did confess yeah or the D, or the golem side came out in anger and confessed to it or something but yeah however yeah, it is I, you would think that initially he would try to cover it up Right. But it was probably harder and harder to do back then in, in a small area when there's very few of them around. Yeah. They probably knew probably. that him and... I was going to say, it's probably, you know, whether it was the first murder or not, I'm sure they were very uncommon. Right. So it's like, oh, Deagle turns up dead and, <laughs> you know, they probably figure something out pretty quickly. Right. You, you know, you mentioned just seeing it for the first time in theaters and I wanted to just kind of go back to that. I, I wanted to just talk about how I just remember the anticipation for this movie, you know, going from watching Fellowship and knowing absolutely nothing about this whole story, this world, and being confused when it ended on such a big cliffhanger, not knowing that it was a a three-part trilogy. And then, you know, fast forward two years, and like, I just remember how badly I was dying to see the conclusion of this epic story and how it, you know, it just, it totally lived up to all my expectations like such a like an epic satisfying conclusion you know not there probably weren't any like real big like surprises but it just like it hit all the 
hit all the notes, if you will. You know, I know people make fun of it for having too many endings and we can get more into that when we discuss part two. But I just remember just the general yeah. feeling of like, finally, it, you know, and it was really, it's only two years, you know, three movies, but they're really only two years apart. 20, 2001, 2003. But I just remember, I just, I was so excited to finally see the third movie and, and could not wait. And then it just, it did not miss. It didn't. I mean, you call them like, you know, I, we call them like events because similar to how I feel like how this generation has, you know, Infinity War and Endgame to be their monumental year apart events of seeing these two films play out in a series with this one, it was, they were these annual events, especially like after the first one. And then you knew that more were coming. You just, you kept getting ready and having this anticipation of when you were going to see the trailers released, when you were going to get any kind of news on them. And that always served to build it up. I feel like what it does still with movies nowadays, there's a lot of buildup for certain things if you're anticipating a film. But with Lord of the Rings, it was it wasn't just the nerds or the fans, but it was so many people, you know, whether they were in the cinema community or not, or whether they had seen, you know, had any experience with the books or not. There was so much buildup to each of these films, knowing that they were going to come back annually. And then, yeah, with this with this last one, it, it was like a big event. I remember. After seeing the first one, each each subsequent one, so for Two Towers and Return of the King, I made sure like as soon as tickets were released or as soon as pre-sales went up, I had tickets for opening night. It was just almost a, ne- a necessity to do that in order to experience it as soon as you possibly could. I don't recall seeing these ones multiple times. I'm, I might have. I probably saw Return of the King multiple times, but yeah. they did just feel like such big events. To, especially for this one to finish out the story and just kind of have that conclusion and go through that, you know, even if you did it on your own or you were the only one in your family that was a fan of it, it was just like, I have to experience this as soon as I possibly can. And then maybe over and over again. And yeah. we, when we saw it, we had a friend of ours, a friend of our families who introduced our family to Lord of the Rings and my parents weren't as into it, but I fell in love with it, you know, enough to read the books and, keep going back and rewatching the films as many times as I could. So when I saw Return of the King on opening night, I took that friend of our family with us. And he is he was the first person I'd ever met who actually had read multiple of Tolkien's works mm. before any hint of a movie was even happening. He was, you know, always been a Tolkien fan, kind of like people that that we know and and you know, obviously. And and so being able to experience that with him was so cool just to sit next to him and see his reactions to certain things coming to life. And then the ending as it goes through, like you said, it's multiple endings, which are very necessary. And I think they're important. Yeah. Watching just like the tears come down his face to be there with a fan was just like really cool. And just like know that it was done well and it was done right. And oh yeah, see a lot of that stuff just come to completion. And there's... I see so many discussion boards all the time and wondering if there will be films that will ever come close to the way that Lord of the Rings was done. And it's probably, you know, a once in a lifetime type of trilogy. Yeah. So for, for you, after we get through the finding of the ring, we're introduced to Gollum, we get through the caves, we get through his transformation, we see all of that. Immediately then, what are some of the things that jumped out to you from, from this time around? What are some of your observations of this first part? Yeah, so then after that, we, we jump back to present day. You know, the Gandalf with the the trio, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, 
have just helped, you know, Rohan to victory at Helm's Deep, and now they're heading back to Isengard. You know, we see them kind of going through, back through Fangorn Forest to Isengard and to confront Saruman. And, you know, of course, initially they, they're greeted by Merry and Pippin, who've been smoking all the Longbottom Leaf and eating the salted pork. We are sitting on a field of victory, enjoying a few well-earned comforts. The salted pork is particularly good. Salted pork. And one very small observation I had was, you know, when Treebeard greets them, he calls Gandalf Young Master Gandalf. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, Treebeard has been around for thousands of years. He, he's been around since at least the first age. But Gandalf has been around since literally the entire universe was created. So I like Gandalf is anything but young. But then this, this whole scene with Saruman, you know, I know it's, it's pretty much all an extended scene. I don't think Saruman actually was in the theatrical version at all, mm-hmm. which I think Christopher Lee was kind of, upset about from what i remember hearing or reading that he wasn't in a theatrical version or that yeah, he was added in that he was completely cut out of the the theatrical release of return of the king because this is a great scene like it just kind of you know it's obviously kind of saruman's at least in the movie saruman's last stand and trying to use his cunning to right. uh, you know he he kind of has these moments with a lot of the different guys like, you know, Aragorn and then and Gandalf and Theoden, where they're trying to get information from him about, you know, where is where is Sauron? Where are they planning on striking next? And, you know, he doesn't give up that information willingly, but he mentions the rods of the five wizards, mm-hmm. which is another just kind of small thing that kind of gives you a, a glimpse into, you know, like, Gandalf and Saruman are are two of, of five that were like the wizards or the Istari as their order is called in you know in Elvish. They're like these five Maya, which are like the sort of second tier of the gods or angelic beings in the world. They are sent, I think, somewhere around the year one thousand of the third age. So they've been around for a couple thousand years at this point. They're sent by the gods to help you know, defeat Sauron. And we do see Radagast in The Hobbit. That's, he's like the third Radagast the Brown. And then there's two other wizards that we don't know a whole lot about that they kind of go into the East and the South and don't really play into this bigger story. But, you know, we obviously, we see how Saruman, you know, totally fails to do what he was sent to do. Whereas Gandalf obviously ultimately ends up being successful. So anyway, I just thought it was just a little interesting thing that they threw in there that kind of gives a little more background. Yeah, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have caught that at all. Again, that's one of those lines that if you haven't read the right stuff, you just kind of go, Oh, that sounds folklorish. That's yeah, nice. Exactly. Very right. mythical. But yeah, it's it's always cool to know those background informations, these Tolkien tidbits that we'll miss eventually. Yeah, right. But then again, so in this extended scene, then you have Christopher Lee playing out the death of Saruman right. here, which a very skillful, well, he's not shot, correct? No, he's stabbed by Grima. That's right. And Grima is shot. Yes, by Legolas, yeah. See, here, here, this might be a very ignorant question, but I think I bet there's, I bet there's multiple viewpoints of this. I bet there could be. But why, why do you think Legolas shot him? Because they're 
trying to keep Saruman alive because they need to know what he knows. So they don't want him dead. So, you know, obviously it doesn't shooting Grima after he stabs Saruman doesn't really help. Uh, doesn't help that's the idea is that he shoots Grima so that he doesn't, you know, try to stab Saruman stab again because they sure they need to know what he knows because as Gandalf keeps saying, he was deep in the enemy's council. And one one note that I wrote is I remember, I don't know if you've ever heard this story where like Christopher Lee talks about how when he was getting direction from Peter Jackson about how to act like when he gets stabbed. Yeah. And, you know, Peter Jackson was telling him to do this and that. And, so, and Christopher Lee was like, no, 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 that's not all wrong. Or that's all wrong. Like, here's how somebody acts when they get stabbed. Because in the war. So he's like, they just like, all the air leaves their body and they just kind of go... <gasps> And that's exactly what he does in, in the movie. Yeah, like, that's yeah. what he does when it's stabbed. I thought that's such a cool story. Like, this guy has lived quite so a lot. So much. And yeah. You would expect him to know that. Yeah. So, and of course, we should also note that, like, this is one major departure from the book. It is. Sarman doesn't yep. actually die at this point in the story. He no, he goes back. wandering. Yeah. He ends up kind of taking over the Shire for a little bit in a, you know, a whole, whole part of the story that's completely left out of the movies sadly which sadly but yeah understandably but yeah it's it's very very different yeah it would have been a very large part of an extended edition if it was left in yeah but yeah so we have that we have that death of grima and saruman saruman's very gruesome fall onto the spike and then slow dipping into the water as the pelantir falls out of his cloak right and is then found by pippin i'll take that my lad quickly now yeah, and that's, of course, ends up being how they figure out that Minas Tirith is the next target. You know, Pippin can't help himself, and right. once they're back in Edoras, he looks at Palantir, and why do you always have to look? Why did you look? Why do you always have to look? I don't know. I can't help it. You never can. Yeah, they have that awesome party. Great song sung by the two hobbits. Yep. And then their massive sleepover. Right. <laughs> the drinking but, game between Legolas and Gimli. Yeah. Which is, yeah, no match for Legolas there. Yeah. I feel it's nice but then my in between that, we've got another, another Gollum Smeagol conversation that takes place when oh, they're, yes. talking, the, when they're talking about what to do next and where to take them. When Sam overhears him. Mm -hmm. Man, again, a real strength of Andy Serkis' acting there, but the way that he can do that, that switch, that back and forth, obviously I know that's editing, but the differentiation between the two voices is very, it would have been worthy of giving him some sort of Oscar for that type of work, but they didn't have it at the time. Still don't have it. But any of the motion capture and voiceover work that he's done, this would have been well-deserving of an award. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then Sam, here's... Gollum say it out loud that he means to kill him and Frodo's yep. still siding with, siding with Smeagol, which, you know, ultimately works out. He finally figures it out. He, yeah. A moment too soon. A little late, kind of, but yeah. yeah. It would have been nice if he figured it out sooner, but but yeah, the, getting back to the Pippin's, uh, Pippin's viewing of the Palantir, which was, yeah, very interesting. I mean, for someone who's not familiar with those things and what they were doing, you see the true power of Sauron using that to pierce right into the minds of those who look into it and hold it. We see a little taste of that later in the second part of, like, well, 
in part two of this conversation about Return of the King, but but yeah, just a real a real vision into into how he controls and how he uses it to get into people's minds there, and then right. obviously having to be quickly covered up and taken by Gandalf. Yeah, which I didn't. Yeah, I would. It just seemed like an oversight on Gandalf's part a little bit when he did see Pippin having such a close eye on it and fascination with it in the water there. But, you know, he's a sneaky little hobbit, so there was obviously a way that he was going to get it if he wanted it. Yeah, it's true. But yeah, from there, I mean, immediately then we have kind of Merry and Pippin being separated for almost the rest of the time here. Yeah, yeah, for the first time. Yeah. As much as the Fellowship got broken up, like Merry and Pippin have stayed together the entire time until this yeah which which is i mean it's huge for them obviously as friends and their closeness of growing up and being in the same community together and traveling together and always having one another's backs and then gandalf separating them which you know had to be monumental for them but i feel like it's a it's a real turning point in 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 the story in general but we get kind of two different views of of their paths contrasting in a way throughout this remaining parts of the story Mm -hmm. you know gandalf takes pippin with him but it's it's for a real purpose you know he obviously ends up lighting the beacon and that sets off that whole sequence and then you know we could see mary kind of on his own as well you know both of them end up swearing service to the king well the steward of gondor and then you know mary to to theoden and then we you know we we get to see both of them play major roles but separately from one another you know that mostly comes in you know the for mary in the second the second part yeah um, but i i a lot of the the next specific observations i had written down kind of all have to do with pippin and gandalf like their scenes together in gondor you know they they go to Minas Tirith, and the first thing i i love i just love the ancient vibe of gondor in general, mm-hmm. you know, this is a, a kingdom that's been here for about 3000 years. And, you know, like just in the throne room, you've got like all the big statues of the old Kings and all the stone, like obviously the, like the whole ministerial is just a giant city built out of stone in the side of a mountain. And like, I just, I love all that. Right. But, you know, they have that scene at first where they go to see Denethor and, you know, Gandalf's like, you know, just don't talk. It's like, in fact, it's better if you don't mm-hmm. talk at all. And, but then, of course, he can't help himself. And he talks about how Boromir died protecting him and Mary, and offers his service to Denethor. And that I will, I'll give you a chance if there's anything up to that point that you wanted to touch on. No, I think, I mean, you're, you're touching on a lot of the things that, that really stuck out to me. And I, again, it did have to do with the contrasting parts of, of their journey and their the differences between their pledges of allegiance to to Denethor and then to Theoden, you know, they're received quite differently, which is very, you know, I think is very interesting showing you the true character of Denethor in these films and then showing you Theoden's willingness to have somebody serve alongside him rather than for him, you know, and you can you can immediately see when when Denethor accepts Pippin's pledge that it's it's purely self-motivated. Yeah. You know, whereas Theoden is just seeing another brother in arms in a way, so to speak, which we'll see more of that played out later on. But, but yeah, I, I would be interested to, 
before I guess before we get into a little bit more of that to talk more about Denethor's portrayal here and the differences from the book a little bit about who he was and the and the character as he's portrayed here. That is I I don't really remember anything about his portrayal in the book to be honest. I've seen the movies so many more times than I've read the books so like what my main impression of Denethor is like how he is portrayed in the movies. Mm-hmm. What do what do you remember about his character in the books? I don't recall him being as outrightly evil, so to speak. You know, he, he portrayed as very just I wouldn't say demonic, but mm-hmm. sadistic in a way. You know, yeah. just cruel and self centered. Uh-huh. Is there's some of that that comes out in the book, but a lot of that is played out as being fearful of what's to come, okay, rather, rather than just cowardly. Yeah. You know he's st- he's still very mighty and strong and not as just this guy in a you know a black long cloak that just kind of winds around everywhere. Mm. Not that I had a I didn't really have a problem with his portrayal in the film. I thought for for what it was and then especially in any kind of time constraints, I thought it was fine. Mm-hmm. And I thought that the actor portrayed him very well. You know yeah. and made him out to be somewhat of the you know the side villain here. He's not Sauron. But he's definitely not helping whatsoever, right? And not stewarding Gondor at all, really, right? So, so it's very, you know, it makes sense that everything that he does, every decision he makes, everything that he says is a very self-serving comment or a very self-serving action. He's merely just trying to preserve him. Yeah. So yeah, because he says, you know, I will not bow to this ranger from the north. You know, he basically accuses Gandalf of, you know, he's been gallivanting around with. Aragorn and wants to supplant Denethor and right. reinstate the the king of Gondor, which is not entirely untrue. But you know, Denethor just takes it personally, and right. you know, he's right. just kind of cowering from you know the threat that's essentially on his doorstep, and yeah, not doing what he needs to be doing to protect the city that he's supposed to be stewarding. the The next scene where we have Gandalf and Pippin on the balcony. That later that night, where they're just you know looking over the balcony, staring straight ahead at over Pelennor Fields at the mountains, and you know you can see the the fire and smoke coming up from Mordor beyond. I love that whole scene. You know, Pippin says it like it's so quiet, and he said it's the deep breath before the plunge. I've always loved that line. It's the deep breath before the plunge. And then after they see the the big green light come up from Minas Morgul, you know, that we see originally from Frodo and Sam's perspective, and then they cut to, you know, the reaction of Pippin and Gandalf from the White City, and Gandalf says, we come to it at last, the great battle of our time. I like He just has so many good, like, one-liners that are, you know, like, yeah. just set the stage for what's to come, and then, and meanwhile, the whole time he's trying to smoke the pipe he keeps coughing. <laughs> that, that just always cracked me. Uh, so yeah, that's that whole that whole scene, you know. Of course, the you know, is there any hope for or hope Gandalf for Frodo and Sam? There never was much hope, just a fool's hope. Like that, that whole scene just has such great dialogue. I love it. Yeah, you could just fill this whole discussion with Gandalf quotes here, but absolutely so great. But then in that somewhere in that we've got the beacons. Yes, the beacon lighting scene, so good. Again, similar to I don't know what scene we, we were talking about with the the one of the first scenes in the Fellowship of the Ring with the elves and their blades. 
calling that iconic. I mean, the beacons uh, of Minotaur, the beacons being lit, a very iconic sequence in the Lord of the Rings story. Absolutely. And just watching that go across, you know, the, the mountains and the different parts and one by one just happening right under Denethor's nose, which is, again, something that very much Gandalf would do. Yeah. But then, you know, then we see Aragorn's reaction. You know, it's almost as if he was just waiting for it to happen as if he somehow knew maybe. And then running in and telling Theoden the beacons have been lit. Gondor calls for aid. And Rohan will answer. Which is a pretty quick, pretty quick change in Theoden's previous thinking. Yeah. But I guess we know. Question like, well, where was Gondor when we needed help? And right. He's he rises above and it's like, all right, they need us. Like, we'll be there. It, you know, it, it is pretty humbling when somebody asks you for help. So I guess you're like, yeah, okay. They did ask, so we'll we'll go now. Right. Well, and he probably understood that you know if Gondor falls, then they'll be coming for Rohan again next. Yeah. You know, we survived at Helm's Deep, but we can't withstand it again. Exactly. The the music in the beacon lighting scene too is just you know another thing that just elevates it as it so often does throughout this entire trilogy it just you know that whole scene is just so powerful right and the major way in which we see pippin make a, a big contribution you know he's he in like in so many ways when the hobbits are doing significant things it's like be, so many times they're counted out because of their smaller stature, you know, like Mary mm-hmm. is, but like a Amer kind of pokes fun at Mary later on. I think that's maybe in part two. It is in part but, two. Yeah. yeah. But you know, just the, the way that so often they make these ma- major contributions to the overall cause because of their size or the things that they're capable of, like, you know, Pippin can climb up that giant thing unnoticed by the soldiers and, Right. Beacons and, you know, going, even going back to Bilbo, you know, being the a thief because of his small stature and the Hobbit's ability to kind of be unseen if they if they want. Um, yeah. Unnoticed. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's just a just that whole sequence is is really great. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah, on the opposite side of that, seeing seeing Mary's reaction to all these things and just wanting you know, I don't know if it was out of missing Pippin, you know, but almost having this strong desire to contribute and fight to, to you know, I, I'm on my own here. I'm the only hobbit here and everybody else is going to fight. Like, I want to fight too. Mm-hmm. And almost being discounted, like you said, by Aomer and Theoden. And I don't I don't know. I, I would really have to recall this, but it might be in this part one that he is kind of poked at by Aomer, you know, or, or Aomer's talking about like, yeah, yeah, it is this one where he says, you know, talks to Eowyn and says, don't encourage him or whatever, Mm. you know, and after she gives him some armor. Yeah. Yeah. He says, I I don't doubt the strength of his heart, just the reach of his arm. Right. Or I think is is the line. And she says, why should Mary not be able to fight for those that he loves? Right. Which, yeah, she's clearly talking about herself more so than Mary because she wants to, she wants to join the fight. But clearly she recognizes that this this entire thing that's happening here is bigger than just like one race of people or one nation. Like this is an entire land of Middle Earth has to band together and fight. So why are we discounting just the little people here, you know, or the ones that go unnoticed, but they should be included as well. All the free peoples of Middle Earth. Right. Yeah. Right. 
which, which, which for me, this first half really, really was like a highlight reel for Mary and Pippin for just different scenes that they were involved in, but for just a lot of key things that they were just kind of, they are, they can contribute. They're not just the, the comedic bits now of the story, but they are right. in their own ways contributing to the greater picture of here of what's going to happen. And I thought that was, I thought the the writers and the way that they filmed it really was a great way to, to bring that part of the story in and not leave Mary and Pippin just kind of off on the sidelines the whole time. Yeah. But uh, sprinkled in this, we have a, also a little bit of a window into Billy Boyd's singing abilities. Oh, yes. Yeah, that that song is one of the highlights of the entire trilogy. Mm-hmm. The Not just his incredible voice but the you know the words of the song and but the cutting back and forth between you know denethor eating like you know obviously the like the tomatoes have become like a very popular like internet meme sort of thing but then you know obviously cutting back and forth between the the faramir's charge to retake osgiliath you know denethor essentially sends him knowingly sends him to his death by telling him to to go back and retake Osgiliath when they after they lost it earlier in the film, you know, because they just don't have the men in. But Denethor obviously doesn't care, and he finally outright says it, like, "Yeah, I wish you had died and Boromir had lived." And he doesn't even doesn't even pretend anymore, which then you know sets up later on. Denethor just goes full on crazy and tries to burn himself and Faramir alive. But we'll right get to that in part two, yeah. Yeah, it's that that shot. You remember that shot in the two towers when Grima asks Saruman, like, or he tells him, like, not even with certain soldiers could you breach the walls of Helm's Deep or whatever. And then it goes to that shot where it shows like all of the orcs and the Urukai that have been gathered mm-hmm. or created in that place, and just that shot over the largeness of that army. We have another one where Denethor kind of goes over the camera, kind of goes over the top of Minas Tirith. Yes. Where he had no idea that far down below his high throne where he's sitting, armies are gathering to come against Minas Tirith down there. Yeah. Yeah. Which is obviously a really awesome shot. Yeah. Which drives him full far. Like I think right there is where he's just like experienced seeing Faramir on the verge of death. And he's kind of stumbling, right? He's like stumbling back, and that's when he kind of looks over the edge of the city. Cause he says something about like his line is ruined or whatever, his line is gone. I don't remember if that's before. I just remember he's like, flee for your lives. And then, you know, Gandalf hits him and knocks him over and it's like, prepare, prepare for battle. Yeah. With his big booing megaphone voice. Right. Prepare for battle. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember. I mean, I guess it would make sense if Faramir was already back because, you know, now there's the giant army between Osgiliath and. I think he is. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's just course. been brought back on that stretcher and then he sees that his son is dead and or dying and then he's just like thrown into a, you know, somewhat drunken hopelessness at that point. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. But then yeah, just seeing that army amass down there almost it almost gives the viewer just like this you're really hoping, you're really thinking that like they're going to come out of this, but at first you're kind of like, "Oh, okay. I guess Ministerith is going down too." Yeah, it feels hopeless. And, you know, I think Denethor says something about how, you know, because Rohan, they're not there yet. And there's Denethor says something about how, like, Rohan has abandoned them or 
neglected them in their their time of need. I, I can't remember exactly what he says, but there is that feeling of like we're alone and there's this massive army on our doorstep and this is it. Why even bother? But of course, Gandalf not going to let him go down without a fight. Right. He knows. Yeah. I mean, he's he's pulling strings and orchestrating all of this stuff anyway, so he knows. Yeah. But we do get, you know, then the siege begins and we do get a little bit of this. I'm, I'm forgetting the sequence of things. I feel like I should have watched this last night. It was a couple of weeks ago now. But we do get another view of like the riders of Rohan getting ready to go out and meet. Gosh, I'm going to have to look this up. I'm, just, I'm forgetting like at what point does Aragorn go into the mountain? At what point do the riders of Rohan head out from their encampment to go meet on the fields? I think it's in this part, but I'm not 100% sure. I, I think it's in the first part. You know, we see, you know, kind of leading up to Aragorn taking the paths of the dead. You know, Arwen is finally able to convince Elrond to have the shards of Narsil reforged. That's right. And, you know, then it's, I believe it's Anduril. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Flame of the West. The, yeah, the new the new sword. So then he takes that to Aragorn and he, you know, tells him about the take the past of the dead. You know, the, that army will only answer to the, the person that wields that sword. So he's he's finally in the movies, finally accepting who he is. Who he is. You know, yeah. he's, he's the, the heir to the throne of Gondor. I think finally realizes that for them to win, like he has to embrace that and, and take up that that role and yeah they finally they're you know they're gathering the the rohirrim and they i think it ends up being like six thousand and then i I, yeah i think they do start heading for minas tirith yep before the end of this part but then they their arrival is not until the second part yeah aragorn just kind of straight like he just up and leaves without telling anybody yeah Gimli and Legolas go with him, but they're like, oh, he's just, he's, he's leaving. Oh, okay. okay. I thought he was going to help us, but. Um, guess not. I guess we got this. Yeah. So. Yeah. But yeah, seeing that large, that large, I don't know what to call it, mustering of horses. I know a lot of, a lot of these sequences that are shot from above, you know, when there's, you're seeing large armies and lots of men and horses, a lot of this is CGI, but it's so well done. It's so well coordinated in a way you know and it's not just thrown together you don't it doesn't look like these little figurines from above they did such a good job they put so much work into these sequences to show like the grandeur and to, to make it look so realistic yeah. so seeing those horses just ride out from that encampment that honestly in the other parts of that movie when you see the encampment and you see them kind of gathering different parts into that army that they're gathering it doesn't look as large until you see it all from above and you see them riding out together. And then right there, you kind of think, you know what? I, I think, I think these people of middle earth kind of do have a shot. Yeah. But yeah, so we, we, we see that we see Aragorn with Gimli and Legolas heading into the paths of the dead. And we see the siege of Gondor really beginning. And it's kind of where we get, we go back to more of Denethor's kind of hopelessness because they bring out, what they call Grand. Yeah. Yeah. The giant the big battering ram and the big wolf looking thing. Fiery wolf. Yeah. And that is how the, the first part ends. We haven't talked a whole lot about the Frodo and Sam Gollum storyline. I know. I feel like they're kind of like second part of the story more, but yeah, I mean, in, in a way, all they're doing is just climbing a big staircase. 
you know, we do before they start heading up the stairs as they pass Minas Morgul, we do get our first glimpse at the Witch King of Angmar. Uh, That's right. He yeah. emerges from Minas Morgul and leads the armies out of there oh, to to the to the battle. the The whole thing where Gollum frames Sam for like eating all the bread and Frodo sends Sam away that happens in this part, right? It does, yeah, yeah. We have the yeah, the burning so, of Sam and Frodo. Yeah, so that's where you know everything kind of comes to a head. Frodo, you know, because they he and Gollum do kind of share this bond, and Gollum is able to manipulate him and you know make him think that Sam wants to take the ring. You know, after Sam offers to share the load, carry it for a while, <laughs> share the load. <laughs> you know, Frodo is finally convinced that, like, okay, Sam wants the ring. And sends him packing, and which is obviously a huge mistake. But Sam, being the loyal gardener that he is, obviously eventually comes back in part two. See, there's that is just really kind of all that happens with them. You know, they just kind of that seed of distrust that Gollum plants in Frodo's mind about Sam finally Mm -hmm. blooms, if you will, and he will quickly realize his mistake in the second part. He quickly does, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, obviously this movie in a way it's it's it almost feels like the middle part of a trilogy because there's just so much setting up. There is a lot set up, you know, yeah. You know, the they do start the battle. You know, but one thing if they like cut it for the second part, like before the Siege of Gondor actually starts. Right. Siege of Minas Tirith. So you know, at least that that part does start. But yeah, it's just interesting how it just feels like so much stuff is getting set up, you know, like Frodo's on the, just about to go into the, the tunnel and encounter Shelob and the Rohirrim are on their way to, to join the battle. And Aragorn is, you know, in the caves. Yeah. In yeah. Getting, you know, summoning the army of the dead to join the battle. And there's so much stuff that just like, it's about to happen. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about the final, final part of the trilogy. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, so much more happens after that too. So yeah, there is a there is a lot to talk about. Yeah, definitely the favorite part of this entire story is coming. So yeah, I feel like there will be there will be so much to talk about. So so yeah, well yeah. Well, as we wrap up part one, we are very much looking forward to part two, and we hope you guys are tagging along with us. But yeah, there's there's so much good to come. No reason to despair. So in all of this. We are glad you guys are with us here at the end of this podcast.